Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Adam Wuerl, an aerospace engineer and advanced concept manager at Blue Origin, working to enable people living in space. That's crazy. How's it going, Adam? Pretty good. How are you, Brett? I'm, I'm, it, it's warm in Minnesota. I'm good. Well, I don't know. That seems surprising. Doesn't it get cold there? Where do you live? Uh, Seattle, Washington. So it's, uh, as uh, John Rodder likes to point out, it's getting getting cold. It's getting damp. Uh, it does rain here in the winter. It's pretty nice in the summer, but uh, no, not too cold yet. No snow. So uh, it's 48 probably doesn't seem too cold to you, does it? No, no, that's totally reasonable temperature. It's 48 at 6 p.m. here in Minnesota. So really, I consider it warm. Yeah, we have we have a couple friends there, and they'll show me pictures of uh, things their freezer keeping things warm. <laughs> so that's distressing. Yeah, it's really fun to do the uh, like take a pot of boiling water and just toss it off the porch in the like in January, and just watch mm-hmm. it freeze before it hits the ground. It's, yeah, it's quite the show. But, it's very temperate here. Yeah, I I I love the Upper West Coast. I could live there. You Except should. It's all the cool places to live are getting so hipster now. Well, such as the West Coast, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So anyway, you're. I, we're going to start with the aerospace thing. We all have right, we have good. many things we can talk about, but that is the one that I immediately, when you said what you did, I said we're not doing a perfect six. This is going to be a full interview. Give us a little backstory. Like, where did the aerospace uh, career start for you? Um, I, I think I've always been interested in aerospace. I mean, it, the uh, risk of cliche going back. I mean, my parents told me I was into Star Wars from when I was three and watching Return of the Jedi. So I think it started way back then. Um, but it, it, I think really where I decided, you know, engineering, I always like designing, drawing things and things like that. And I know uncle was an architect and I thought I wanted to be an architect because I like drawing. And I, I remember job chatting with him in middle school or high school or something. He said, yeah, you don't want to be an architect. If, if, if you have any aptitude for math or science, you should uh, you should go into engineering. And I was like, well, I, I could go into engineering spaceships. Wait, an architect so told realized, you that? Yeah. He said, you don't want this job. Huh, uh, okay. You know, it's, it's not what you think it is. It's not all glory and making <laughs> amazing drawings. There's a lot of going to job sites and working with subcontractors and you know, running a whole business side. And, and uh, he's like, if you just like to design things, you should become an engineer. And so once I realized that I could engineer space things, I was like, oh, well, that, that's that. That's what I'm doing. Did you, did you have Legos? I was never, shockingly, not that into Legos. My, my son is basically a master builder. Um, he will make amazing things out of it. But uh, I, I never really was. The extent of my rocket and spaceship building was confined to Legos. Well, you can make cool-looking spaceships in Lego, I can tell you that. Yeah, you can. Especially yeah. if you mix in, like, the Wild West packages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then you – did you <laughs> – it's kind of amazing to me that you had this thought as a kid, basically, and stuck with it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's stubbornness, but I, I did like it. Um you know, when I got into it, if like I'd gotten in, I really hated physics. I suppose that would have been the end of it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I've, I guess I've been lucky that I've been able to always kind of find a job, uh, 
you know, that was interesting in, in one of the fields. And I moved around a few places, but I, I just love that part of the problem, right? It's hard. Um, you know, people always say that cliche space is hard, which I guess it is. I don't really like that saying, but, uh, you know, that's what makes it fun. Um, and uh, that's what makes there be interesting, smart people you get to work with. I like how you summed up in a few places, uh, NASA and Lockheed Martin, space flight industries. <laughs> I worked at a few places. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of uh, uh, waiting tables in between there, huh? I did. I think that my first job, I uh, I worked in a brewery in Bellingham, Washington, which is a little north of Seattle, where I grew up. And so that was a... Uh, I was cleaning mash tons and scrubbing things and sanitizing and helping to bottle beer. But uh, that just you know, made still, everyone feel good. better. Yeah. Every bar hop now feels like they have a future in uh, aerospace technology. That's perfect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was between high school and college, I think. You can be anything you want to, except that's not really true. How did you... Every kid thinks they're going to be an astronaut. Um and then most give up on that idea. And then there are plenty who, like you said, start school, find out physics isn't their thing, uh, find out even engineering in general isn't their thing. Uh, aside from your own personal aptitude, was there anything that made it possible for you to just continually pursue this? Um, there, were, there were a few things that helped. I mean, everyone would say like their parents or whatever, but I, I mean, I definitely remember going on ski trips and, and just asking my dad all sorts of ridiculous questions. Right. And he would always entertain it. Um, and when he didn't know something, he would say he didn't know, but I think just, uh, having people responsive to curiosity, I guess, and thinking that that's a good thing. And, um, you know, I remember at one point we just got an old encyclopedia set from a garage sale that was, you know, pr printed in like 1978 or something like that. Uh, and I just had it in my room and I would pull out things and start to read just because I thought it was it was interesting and I always wanted to know more about other stuff. So I think it's just like a, I don't know, a curiosity, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be your view. A lot of people have curiosity that does not uh, come to fruition, but that is awesome. Um, you said you had kids. I do. I've got two. They're seven and ten. Mm, both boys. Both boys. If you had a girl. This is a, a personal curiosity of mine. If you had a girl sure. and she expressed interest in math, engineering, how would you foster that? I, I, I would want to say in some sense, I hope the same that I would foster it in, in a son um, in the sense of being encouraging and everything else. I mean, I do think there's a little, you know, especially now and so much of what's in the news, I think you have to take a little extra effort just to make sure that you know, she feels that that is a perfectly reasonable thing. I mean, I, I do have the benefit of, of I've worked with a lot of, of women in the, all the various places I've been. Um, and, you know, it's still the industry overall, I think this is true of industry generally, is still kind of not where it needs to be. But um, I have heard horror stories that I've not kind of seen personally. And so so that's been good. But, you know, I, I don't really have a great answer to that other than, I guess, be supportive of, of what they're in and let them know that, you know she can do it if she wants to. Yeah. I imagine you'd, you'd be quite good at it. I do think it takes extra effort because in the rest of their life outside of home, that's not necessarily going to be fostered unless you go to lengths, at least at this point in history. And yeah. And, that, and that's just, it's craziness. It's terrible. I mean, some um, of the toy, like, uh, any presents I buy for nieces, are always, uh, it's based on their interests. I don't try to push them into anything, but if they show any interest in, say, spaceships, 
I get like there are all these new toy companies that sell like engineering kits and really basic Arduino kits for like ages eight and up and everything. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really I'm excited about. I would play with those toys even now as a f- almost forty year old man. So yeah, I I'm I'm heartened to see that. But anyway, let's talk about you. All right. So what now you, now you're at Blue Origin. I am. Yeah, I started about uh, in June, so I haven't been there too long, but uh, it's grown fast. There are a lot of a lot of people there who haven't been there very long. So uh, the the headline at Blue Origin's website says, "Earth and all its beauty is just our starting place." We are of Blue Origin, and here is where it begins. Tell us about Blue Origin. Um, it's you know I, I get asked that a lot, right? Because I just. Uh, kind of started in a, in anything so friends and family kind of what it's like what i've described is it's um you know it's in some ways it's a lot like i expected i you, you mentioned before that i've i've worked at a few other places you know lockheed martin was was very big right it's there's like over a hundred thousand uh, people who work there um and it was good and i loved it but it, it is a big company right and so that was all the things you imagine when you get at a big company i think you've worked at one too you know there's a lot of process it can be slow to change things uh, and then I've worked at a very small company, um, you know, when I, I think when I hired in Spaceflight, maybe a couple dozen people there. So that's really small. And it's a totally the other end where, you know, there's and sometimes not processes for anything. Uh, and you're kind of making everything up as you go, um, at least at first. And so, you know, it's a middle size company. And so it's kind of in the middle there, which is a nice balance of tension of um, you don't have to invent everything from whole cloth. But on the other hand, um, you know, if something is is slower than needs to be, then uh you know, there's a cultural desire to change that and, and speed it up. So it's kind of a nice balance culturally in that sense. That sounds excellent as far as work environment goes. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, you know, it's, I think I, I've never worked at Amazon. I have a couple of friends who are there, but you know, I think some of those things are similar unsurprisingly, um, you know, kind of open floor plan. There's dogs running around in the office. Uh, there's cool stuff inside. There's a, a picture on an Ars Technica article. I think of a, a pretty sweet steampunk Jules Verne spaceship right in the lobby. Uh, that you're going to see every day as you walk, walk into the office. So that's pretty cool and inspiring. Okay. Side question before you continue, do you personally work in an open environment? In a open, you said? Yeah. Like yeah, like open, fl- open floor plan. Yeah. I mean, the whole office is, um, I mean, nobody has, nobody has offices there really. I mean, there's a few your conference rooms and things like that, but yeah, it's pretty open, just some tall furniture with coat racks and stuff okay, like that. So do you like that? Um, it's, it's okay where I am. I have to say I'm, I'm the kind of person who prefer offices generally, uh, but I haven't had one since, since I was a co-op at NASA. And even then there were three of us in, in this huge office. Um, so I guess I could never, I don't really have a comparison point, but you know, I do like being able to kind of focus on stuff. I am kind of tucked into a corner. So in practice, it works out fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, I, I can't work in offices at all, even with cubicles or offices. But every time I interviewed at a place that had, like, uh, I, I interviewed at Target, and they, when they gave me a tour, the, like, coding room was just long tables of uh, ch- chairs where people would sit down with their laptops and do partner coding and team coding. And it was, I, I froze. Like, I just, I could not, I can do partner and pair coding you know, especially if it's over the internet, but sitting <laughs> in a room full of people trying to think and concentrate. And I, my personality does not deal with that. So I've always tried to understand how 
companies that make amazing things, how that's beneficial. But that might be another conversation. Yeah, I'm sure it's different for everybody. I mean, it it's pretty good about people being people being quiet and going somewhere where they need to talk and things like that. But um, oh, I'm sure it's different for many people than it is for me. Yeah, there's a reason I haven't worked in an office for well, like 15 years. Yeah, it's pretty cool that that's even possible. I know I got so lucky. <laughs> I live in an age where that's an option. Yeah. Um. All right. So, what is Blue Origins kind of? Um, what do they have their hands in? Um, well, there's probably not too much I should say, but you know, things are on the website are fair game. So, I mean, the most well known is uh, New Shepard, which is a suborbital um, rocket, uh, basically designed for space tourism, right? Take people up into space and, and bring them back down again. Um, and so that's that's in development. Um, there are a bunch of test flights kind of last year that were. Um, you know, pretty highly publicized and cool videos of it landing and things like that. So that's one of the big pro- uh, programs and kind of the other big thing that um, uh, gets press is uh, New Glenn, which is a full kind of orbital rocket. Um, it's it's huge. Uh, it's a little bit smaller than the Saturn V, but just for a sense of scale, it's kind of on that on that order. Um, so it's it's a big rocket. Okay. And what's that one? If if uh, Shepard is that what it was? If that's for uh, yeah, the first one, New Shepard. If that's for tourism, what is uh, Glenn for? So being full rocket, it's putting stuff in space. So you know, basically anything you could imagine as a potential use case: um, launching satellites, people, tourism in space, you know, sending things to the moon, uh, whatever, whatever mission is not in the atmosphere of Earth or coming back yeah. to Earth. Okay, it's a potential potential use, you know. So. Um, I guess if I recall correctly, Blue Origin was, uh, one of the early companies to start working on reusable rockets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the, the reason there is no different than SpaceX and what Elon said about it. Right. I mean, throw the thing away, obviously it's going to be expensive. And if there's that goal of, you know, eventually being basically a spacefaring civilization, then it's not acceptable for it to cost you know, 10,000 or more dollars a pound to get stuff to orbit. Um, it's just not tenable. So, you know, step one, stop throwing the rocket away every time, uh, that should help. And, uh, (laughs) so that's, that was kind of the, you almost like a ground rule from the beginning, right? Like if we can't do that, then we're never going to get there. So let's start with that as a kind of top requirement and then move from there. So, uh, blue origin is among the, uh, much like SpaceX, the kind of private sector, uh, Mm -hmm. aerospace, companies uh working to kind of fill the void that uh nasa has now after manned space flight was terminated is that am i on point there i I, i'm not sure it's quite like that i mean you know obviously yeah it's been a while since we've launched people in the space and that's kind of a um i mean it's kind of a national tragedy but i think it's um you know, really the way I think about it, uh, you know, not speaking for the company or anything, but it's it's that there there are a lot of very smart people at NASA doing a lot of cool things. And, you know, a lot of progress was made with with how they uh, have kind of been handling the, the ISS resupply, right, with SpaceX yeah. and Orbital and the other vehicles that they built kind of in a commercial model where instead of NASA paying for the development of these things, they said, we want a service and we'll pay you for that service. 
like pretty much all other commerce happens. Um, and then they use the promise of those those contracts and that future work to fund the development. And now it seems to be going well. And, you know, it's still expensive, but it's a lot cheaper than I think it would have been under their model. So, sure. you know, that kind of a thing where NASA's trying to do stuff. They have science they want to do. They're trying to expand things and to have companies and contractors, you know, take the stuff that, uh, that they're capable of doing uh, lets them focus, I think, a little bit. So I think when it was first announced that, uh, NASA, it was during Obama's term, I'm 90% certain that NASA would not be doing manned space missions anymore. I was kind of, mm-hmm. I was in shock, possibly. Yeah. De- my, the, my inner child was devastated. Uh, and then I started seeing what uh, people like Elon were doing. And I actually realized that this is one point where a competitive market may, might actually get us to Mars faster than a government agency could. Yeah, I was watching a, a video or an interview Elon did somewhere, and I, I can't remember exactly where it is, but he made a really good point, right, that, you know, on the long arc of history, right, it kind of seems like progress is inevitable. Um, but he said it's it's not, in the sense there's no natural, it's not like entropy, right, it just doesn't increase on its own. Like, it, it only goes up because there are always people working to make it better, right? And if you don't, and if you take your eye off the ball, like, you can slide backwards. Um, you know, we had a dark ages. We decided that, uh, you know, it wasn't important to us to go back to the moon. And so we went a few times and then we stopped. And, you know, it's, that's the 60s and now it's the late teens. So it's been a while. Um, and these things aren't inevitable, right? They take steady dedication and progress and a lot of uh, brain cycles of, of smart people, uh, you know, working together over a long period of time to make this kind of stuff happen. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a thing you have to decide to do and, and you can, rally like a national cause and you can get a bunch of money behind it and you kind of almost can skip forward right you, you can accomplish something sooner than you would have naturally but if you want to sustain that you know that kind of a thing you're not going to be able to run an apollo or a manhattan project for 50 or 60 years so ultimately if there's no way to have there be some sort of economy or make money then it's not going to be sustainable so i think that's the difference now is we're at this cusp where we're getting where there's other ways to make money in space. And um, that's what's kind of exciting between small satellites and, you know, these reusable launch vehicles that are going to be a lot more cost effective. It kind of feels like there's a tipping point where it'll be possible to make money at a whole new um, sense of scale than it had been for the last, you know, 100 years. Yeah. So it could actually end up being a profitable pursuit. Yeah, and there's a lot of money made in space now, even telecommunications, satellites, sure. and stuff like that. But I think it's just the scale of it, right? Being able to, to do that at 10x or 100x. It, so I get this sense uh, from SpaceX that Elon is not driven by profiting from aerospace as much as he is driven by getting to Mars. Does that is that true? Am, am I reading that right? I, I, I don't know him, but that's kind of the same impression I have just okay. you know, watching what he says on Twitter and on videos and stuff that, you know, he seems passionate about that for sure. And I, I take him at his word. Um, so where would you say? Blue, yeah, it's totally admirable goal. So where would you say that Blue Origin falls in with a goal like that? I I don't know. I mean, I can speak for myself that I, you know, I did just kind of talk about the the economic side of it. And I think that's important, but mostly for sustainability. I mean, in, in my heart, like it still feels like, you know, we go to space cause it's, it's there. And yeah. why would we not want to do that? Right. I mean, we're just going to sit here on this planet for the rest of our existence. It kind of seems, um, 
uh, artificially limiting. So, I mean, to me, there is a bigger call and a bigger vision. It's just I see the the, the economics and the ability to make money is like that's a necessary but uh, condition to be able to do it in a sustainable way. I can't imagine a human being that looks at um, getting into space as the most profitable possible pursuit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm sure it yeah. has some uh, profit motive, uh, but I, I 100% see how sustainability, how, how making a profit can fund further research. But there are so many other things that someone with the money to do that could do. I have to yeah. assume that space travel is for the love of space travel. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, there aren't a lot of people I've met in my career that are like just straight up mercenaries, right? Where they're, I just do this because I need a paycheck, right? It's like, yes, I mean, obviously I need a paycheck, but, um, you know, I do it because I love it. I, I could do structural design on, you know, exercise equipment. Um, but I do it on landing gear or whatever. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, yeah, the people do it because they love it. Uh, so what, what kind of, uh, what kind of projects at, at, uh, blue origin and, and previously, like what kind of projects do you work on? Um, well, the, so I can talk about, I'll, I'll talk about what, what I did when I was at, at space flight. So that was, you know, um, about five years and, and I was a program manager for their first, uh, satellite, which was a small, so 50 kilograms, think like a two drawer filing cabinet size, um, uh, earth imaging satellite. Um, and so when started, that was, you know, a, a small team, a, a rough concept, a PowerPoint chart from a uh, customer with a set of bullets on it of what they wanted it to do. And, um, our team after, you know, four plus years of hard work and it was in orbit and doing what it was supposed to do. So that was, that was pretty exciting to see like the full life cycle of a thing that, um, you know, at, at Lockheed might be people could spend their whole careers, um, to kind of develop a satellite and granted they're a lot bigger and a lot more complex and a lot more expensive, which is why it's possible. But it was really cool to see that kind of from end to end, uh, from all the problems that you have when you get into, you know, integration and tests of something, um, to actually seeing it work is, is pretty rewarding experience. What was the first thing that went into space with your metaphorical fingerprint on it? That is a good question. I think it actually might have been that satellite. Uh, cause I had a long history before of, uh, my programs getting canceled, uh, <laughs> which, which was a little depressing. Um, there was, a, there was a, some software programs I worked on. I was at, at Lockheed that I think ultimately flew, but, uh, uh, you know, some line of code on a flight computer somewhere. But, uh, uh, other than that, I think, I think that was maybe the first big one that, uh, that flew that I would really say, like it, I felt, felt some ownership over, um, rather than just a real small cog in a very large machine. Yeah. Oh, I, I, my brain is going in multiple directions right now. Um, I, I, I have to ask, I don't know what your current job, uh, like security level is, but have you spent a lot of time mm -hmm. working in basically like high level security can't tell anyone what you're doing? Well, I would say the first rule of that would be if you did that, you wouldn't talk about it. So, um, Oh, so I probably shouldn't talk about what my brother-in-law working for the DOD has told me. That, which that's is probably which wise. to be fair which is basically i can't tell you anything yeah yeah that's a good response there's that line from top gun right i tell you and then i have to kill you <laughs> yeah just not the case is that person would just go to jail and that would be the end of that so i'm gonna assume then that that has been at least some part of your career has that 
has that been hard on your personal life? Um, I, in some ways I think just generally not being, uh, coming home and not bringing work with you for whatever reason that is can be healthy. And that's not always been a thing that I'm awesome at. Um, but when there are constraints of any kind that, that make it so when you get home, like you can't really bring the work with you. I think that, um, those periods end up kind of, at least in retrospect, being generally happier, uh, periods where you can get home and you can decompress and you can think about other things and, and pay more attention to your, you know, friends and family and relationships and things like that. So I think there are, there are benefits to it. Um, sure. Yeah. You always want to tell everybody what you're working on, but, uh, you know, there are ways to do that and, and be discreet and not say anything and, and, um, where it's, it's in practice, not really a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually think there might be something there. Uh, startup companies should have like an airlock. And once you leave it, you're not allowed to talk about what happened during the day just for the benefit of your home life. Separation yeah. of work life. Now, now that said, you know, I met my wife in, in college and we had the same degrees and went to the same schools and we've worked at the same companies for a good chunk of our careers. So there's a lot of time where, you know, we were working on the same thing or in the same area. And so, you know, we could we could still talk about stuff, um, which kind of, you know, some people like, well, how do you, you know, how do you do that when, uh, um, you know, you're you're spent all that time together? And it's like, well, you know, it's good. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know. So do you have any personal aspirations to go into space? I, I think eventually it'd be fun. I mean, I have to admit, like, e even though, you know, safety is obviously everyone's kind of paramount concern when whenever there's there's humans involved. Um, I still do have two little kids. Uh, so, you know, I'll I'm interested at some point, but I'll, I'll let everything get a few flights under its belt first and uh, let the people who really want to be on the uh, what is it? The, the foreguard is that the one in the front vanguard. I can never vanguard. remember. Anyway, the people who go ahead. Uh, let them go ahead and I'll, I'll be a, you know, middle of the road adopter. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Vanguard. Yeah. Hmm. From my, from my roots as an anarcho communist to my <laughs> love of cutting edge technology, the Vanguard party is always my favorite. Excellent. Do you have any, um, like romantic dreams of life on Mars? Wow. Um, do you share those with Elon? I, I think people should go. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's there. Uh, it's a natural place to go. I mean, the only other place that's even, you know, kind of in the running is a place we would go first is the moon just because it's, it's closer. Um, you know, Mars obviously has some benefits that, that the moon doesn't and vice versa, but you know, ultimately what's the answer is to settle and have people on both, um, as Did well you see as flying space stations. No, I didn't. <laughs> It's about a, a Nazi uh, camp, like a whole like moon base on the dark mm -hmm. side of the moon, right. where they they exist for decades. Uh, like the actual Third Reich, like colonizes the dark side of the moon, mm -hmm. and then they exist there, raising new generations until they can reinvade Earth. So, uh, so the moon's out for me, is what I'm saying. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, the I, I've, I've, uh, the moon is a fascinating thing. I mean, its orbit is is particularly fascinating. Like that that phrase, like dark side of the moon. I know there's like an album or whatever, um, but it's it's strange because there is a side that never faces the Earth, right? So there right. one side of the moon always faces the Earth, but obviously there's no dark side per se. So right, the side that faces away from the Earth is lit up by the sun when there's a new moon 
because that's right. we're looking at the dark side and the light side is facing away from us. So I always I always use far side, but uh, is that what the comic was named after? Far side. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Although I believe he's a Washingtonian, so yay for that. <laughs> oh man, um, yeah. So you 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 just passed off Pink Floyd's like seminal album, not even seminal, but as some <laughs> I do album. Like I do like that album. You ever go to the light show? You ever watch it in tandem with Wizard of Oz? I tried that once in college, uh, and it was <laughs> didn't fine. everybody. I, you know, I was I was stone cold sober in every sense of the time, so I don't know. Maybe that made it not interesting. I guarantee that alters the um, okay. Not altering yourself alters the interpretation. Got it. Sure. I was like, yeah, it's a cool album and a uh, old movie. <laughs> it's an All okay right. album. Really, the wall was better. But what would I cool... know? I got into Pink Floyd when I was twenty five years old, and yeah. Decades yeah, later. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we have we have other topics. We're close to needing to switch to the top three picks. But you did mention something uh, in pre-show about Amazon's six-page memo. Oh, yeah. I. So, I mean, this was the thing I had read about, like, way before you know i started a blue origin or whatever just you know reading about things you come across it like i think um i think i might have found it through edward tufty actually you know who he is yeah for sure okay so i think i came across his his book somewhere i don't even i, I think it was maybe an article in in uh, some alumni magazine or something i read and and found out about him and grabbed his book i was like oh my god this is amazing um and so started following him on twitter and some other things and i think that's where uh, I first came across that and it was just this idea. I mean, I, I think when I first saw it, I, I might have even still been um, been at Lockheed for as much as I, I loved it there. There's there's a lot of PowerPoint um, there, especially in any government contracting. And it can just be so soul sucking at times. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Just sitting and flipping through charts and all the work that goes into making them. And it's just such a low bandwidth communication media yeah literally uh, on both sides like the people who know it's coming already dread it yeah. and the people who know they have to provide a powerpoint presentation already know how much they would dread it if they were on the other side and everyone yeah oh yeah it, it, it's the worst and I, i've hated it i've hated it for years and so again you came across this thing and was like oh that's fascinating i wonder if that would work in practice and um, there's a good, I think there's a charlie rose interview although you know maybe people don't want to watch old charlie rose stuff now um <laughs> As long that, as uh, Bezos hasn't been dethroned yet. Yeah, not not that I know of. So By the anyway, time this comes out, maybe. I hope not. Um, that that where he describes it. And, you know, it's basically instead of somebody making a bunch of PowerPoint charts and everyone's sitting around and flipping through them while they, you know, read off the slides or whatever, um, the the theory is you, you write it down, right? You just write a memo uh, that describes everything. And the, the six page is kind of like a good reference link, right? That it's not too long, not too short. Um, and instead of flipping through that, you just start the meeting and everyone sits down and they read it quietly. Uh, and then, you know, however long it takes, 15, 20 minutes, however long it takes to read six pages. And it's kind of like, okay, everyone's done. And then it's, you know, are there any questions or any comments? There's anything missing. Um, you know, what should we do next? Uh, are there any actions or decisions that need to come out of this and have that conversation then done and move on to the next thing? Um, and I was just kind of fascinated when I heard that. It's like, would that work? You know, and it was, it was, I was never really in a position to kind of make 
that happen, right? It's just pushing against too much cultural inertia um, anywhere. But, uh, you know, it, it from limited experiences, is kind of like it says on the tin. Yeah. So what format is the memo in? Is it just text? Is it oh, bullet I mean, points or other images? Yeah, there can be whatever whatever makes sense for the content. I mean, whatever you as the author think makes sense. If there needs to be a drawing or a graph or a figure or whatever, but um, but it's yeah, basically it's the, everything you would say if you were doing a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, even if yeah, it was a good out. PowerPoint presentation that didn't try to put everything you were saying up on the slideshow. Right, and that's kind of the difference, right? If you're doing a talk, it's something you want to have like a jokey picture in the back or you know a couple words. Like that's what it's made for, right? It's made for visual aids for like a talk, right. like. But if you're trying to explain some complicated trade study or some deeply technical thing, like you're not given a jokey presentation at some conference, right? There's doing serious business here. So, you know, you need all that background. You need the argumentation. You need things to be laid out in some sort of reasonable order where someone's thought through it all. Um, and that's just a much better medium for having that kind of information exchange. Than so, so it's basically a blog post printed at like double space 12 point. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. And the thinking, you know, I, I've, there's a reasonable criticism. It's like, why don't you send it ahead of time and people read? And, you know, the answer you gave, it makes sense for busy people. Just like, look, you can send it ahead of time, but let's be honest, nobody's going to read that. Right. So um, instead, it's like, well, you just you block out the time and spend part of it right there and everyone reads it together. Um, I, I hadn't heard of this previously. I'm a big fan of the idea. I'm a big anti fan of PowerPoint in general. Mm hmm. Like I, I give presentations when I do presentations, if at all possible, I just I write out like uh, using HTML5 slides mm -hmm. and I put very little text on them at all. Like you said, they're, they're visual aids to help, but then the rest is just me talking. But for me as a, uh, a participant, I am I am not an audio learner at all. I am not even a visual learner at all. So for me, just having, if someone would print out their PowerPoint ahead of time, along with their speaker notes, and mm -hmm. I could just read it, I would, I would learn way more than I do in any presentation. So oh, yeah. for a personality like mine, for a learning style like mine, this is amazing. But it seems to me like it would be beneficial to everybody because most people don't know how to make a good PowerPoint, present a good PowerPoint. And if, and when they do, even people who aren't audio learners, they're not going to get it anyway. And you're going to have to hand out show notes afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And you find right away when you try and write something down, if you actually know what you're talking about. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of times I've you start to write something. You're like, well, you, you thought this made sense. I mean, I think Gruber said this on the talk show, too. Right. It's like you go through writing something down and then you change your own mind or you realize that your thinking didn't make any sense. Um, I recently put a, a book of screencasts on mm -hmm. uh, Mac OS. And I will say that while the screencasting itself should have taken maybe 30 minutes for each one. Mm -hmm. Most of them take about three hours because <laughs> once you kind of write down what you're going to go through and you start to do it, you realize, hey, I need to double check that. Is that actually true? And yeah, yeah you, yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And, you know, out of that, people just become better writers, too, which I think makes people better thinkers. So. All right. So last thing before top three picks. All right. 
I did a show with a, a game developer, like a like a board game creator, mm-hmm. a while ago. Okay. Because I have this intense curiosity. I I love games. I love board games. I love uh, puzzle games, and I've always tried to really refine what the essence of the games I love the most is, like what the key points are. And yeah. you mentioned that you're actually developing a board game right now. I am. Uh, yeah, aerospace my, engineer I'm developing a board game. I'm really curious about this. Uh, well, it was uh, just with a with a friend of mine uh, that we worked together. And it, it's Genesis was kind of uh, we were working on the same program. And, and as I alluded to before, it got canceled. And so we went from working a lot of overtime to uh, not working any <laughs> overtime. Um, and so we suddenly find ourselves with a lot of time and, and so we just been tossing around, you know, we're both board game lovers and we play a lot of, of games and things like that. And you kind of hit both always as kids, like thought, Oh, you know, this is the kind of game I'd like to play and just started bouncing ideas off each other at lunch and, and after work and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, slowly kind of iterated on something. We took a cut at something and played it and we're like, wow, this is literally the worst game we've ever played. It's so incredibly terrible. Um, but that's where it started and, and kind of iterated through it until we, you know, kind of had a, a prototype that we played enough that we thought was actually fun. So what are the, uh, the key ingredients to you to a good board game? That's an interesting question because we're, we're both systems engineers. So naturally we started with like, what are our requirements for this game? Right? Like what, what is the end? What is the goal we're going for? And so we actually did start kind of start deliberately, like what are key aspects of that? So we wanted, for example, uh, we didn't want any elimination. We wanted everyone who's in the game to be in the game until the end. So not like Risk where someone's gone and then they have to go play Nintendo in the corner until everyone else finishes, but <laughs> something where everyone's in it and then the game ends and you figure out who won. Um, so that was one thing. Uh, we wanted a game without where there was an economy, but where there was no money, if that made sense. So we wanted people to be able to trade. We wanted their things to have value and to have asymmetric value, but we didn't want money as a bookkeeping mechanism. Uh, and so we had to try and figure out a way to do that. Um, and then we wanted uh, something that would kind of keep the game from running away, where if if someone kind of gets a lead, there are natural mechanics in there that, uh, you know, compress the game and, and make it so other people can catch up without it feeling like there's too much rubber banding, you know, like NFL Blitz or something where you just fumble every time you get the ball. Um, <laughs> so those are all kind of the delicate things we were trying to do. And then, of course, you know, we're space nerds, so it had to be a space theme board game. Uh, and so it was marriage of the theme with those kind of goals. And that's where we started. Nice. All right. Are, are there certain. Is there a je ne, je, je ne, <laughs> I can't je ne sais quoi? Is yes. Is, is, um, is there something that you can't capture in a basic that you can't necessarily describe. This is what needs to happen. This is a balance between risk and reward. Uh, there, there are certain games that are just addictive that have been classics for decades now that have something that I've never been able to pinpoint. This is the exact principle that makes this game so addictive. I don't know. There might be the closest I think I've ever came to that was one of our other goals, which is it needs to be fun to lose. That some games are just a drag. And when you get to the end, if you don't win, it feels like, what was I doing? What was the point of all that? We wanted a game where you had fun during the game and then it was over. You get a little extra bonus if you win. But even if you didn't win, it's like, yeah, that was fun. We should play again. 
Um, yeah. and, and to me, that's like <laughs> what makes a good game is you get to the end and you're like, yeah, I might not have won that one, but I want to play again right now. And not just because you want a chance to win, right? Because it was fun the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Like the games that I like to play most by myself on the iPhone that have no, that aren't, uh, competitive with anyone mm-hmm. are ones that if I fail, if I lose, die, etc. Mm-hmm. I immediately want to hit play again. Right. Retry. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, to the extent that there's a, there's a, whatever that means in, in English, I guess, uh, unlabelable quantity that, that that's it. Like that yeah. replayability kind of. Yeah. I, I got to figure this out. Like, I feel like I, when I was a kid, I took a, um, like community ed course on babysitting you get like at the end of it you get a babysitter's license and as part of the course you had to create a board game for kids ages three to eight Hmm. and i had a blast with it uh in practice it wasn't as fun to everyone else as it was to me even though it had a ton of like tactile components um, at that point, I hadn't even considered the like risk reward, uh, audio feedback, any of the stuff that makes it super attractive to that age group. Mm-hmm. I like. I, I guess I've always struggled with it. I I really I'm curious to see what it is that you're coming out with. Um, yeah. When you when you have a prototype, I'd be curious to know about it. When you're ready to go public with it. And when it goes for sale, I'll absolutely plug what you're doing. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, we, we have a prototype. We've been, you know, this is not our day job and we only have limited time. So, you know, we kind of poke a couple of publishers here and then. And I, we know at some point if we really want to do it seriously, we just need to go to a game convention and take the prototype and get some people to play test it. But, uh, you know, just haven't haven't mustered up the, you know, how many players is it for uh, two to six? That was another thing we wanted is we wanted it where you could just two people could do it or you could have a, a pretty big group and it would scale kind of everywhere in between. And it does, it does play differently. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot more kind of strategic and cutthroat with two and six. It just kind of feels like a free for all. But, um, that was a goal from the very beginning to have it be able to do a wide range of people. I hate games that are only like three or four. Cause it's, you know, it's, you have to have like a bespoke party just to take it out. If you need a tester, I can pull together two to six people. No problem. All right. Yeah. Uh, have you, have you ever played cooperative board games oh i love cooperative board games Um, what are your favorites i'm curious the only one i've played thus far is pandemic yeah that's what i was gonna say that's one of my favorites uh i played betrayal at house on the hill that one's okay um that one can get to me that game almost feels kind of rushed like you're you're playing it and it feels like there's a lot of cool exploration happening and i feel like i'm just getting into the game and then the haunt starts and it's like where it kind of switches modes into this end game thing and that always feels like it comes on like suddenly without kind of any pre-warning so that, that's one thing i'm really like about that one's fun and then the classic one i think is arkham horror you're playing against the game except if you don't play that with somebody who is like a phd in arkham horror just like forget <laughs> about it i mean the rule book is measured in like inches i think and there's so much happening i basically just follow the cloud of chat time and like it's time to roll you should move over here you should do this and it's like okay yeah i uh it was fun but Arkham Horror is in my uh, Amazon uh, shopping cart save for later section right now. Mm-hmm. How long has it been there? Uh, just a couple weeks. Oh, okay. That's not too bad. 
I I asked on Twitter like what people suggested for two player board games because we're coming into winter in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever you end up, you know, trapped in a house with is going to be <laughs> <laughs> when it's negative twenty and there's snow up to the doorknob. You, yeah. you you're probably only going to have one to three people to play games with. Uh, and games are a necessity because you have nothing else to do once the power goes out. Right. So I needed things I could play by candlelight in a Minnesota winter. I'm making it sound worse than it actually is. but Okay. <laughs> but I asked for suggestions, and Arkham Horror came up multiple times. You can definitely kill an afternoon with that or a whole day. So one of my one of my things is if a game takes more than an hour to play, it's really hard for I have trouble sitting down to watch a movie because it feels like an investment. I get uh, I get antsy about giving up more than a block, like a, an hour block at a time. Yeah, you could leave it set up, I guess. But no, I hear you for sure. Like you get, you get, I used to play a lot of Axis and Allies when I was in in high school. And, you know, I would play with my dad and friends and stuff. But I think my dad and I had a game once, you know, it ran, it must have been 10 hours or something. It was ridiculous. Um, And at some point it's like, it stops kind of being fun, you know? Yeah, I was in the uh, dorm room, dorm building at the University of Minnesota for a little while with the like pre-med students. And they would play Nightmare Chess and I and Risk. And I would always lose because I would just I would freak out and just leave. Yeah. I would just yeah, not good, myself. It's it's good it's fun when you're a kid and I used to play a lot, but it, it's really not that well designed of a game. Yeah. Have you played Nightmare Chess? <laughs> no, I've heard of that, but I don't actually you, know what You put like four chess boards together and play with slightly modified rules. Okay. It's um uh Apropos, it's a nightmare. I I have enough trouble with the standard board thinking I had enough spaces to make strategic moves. Yeah, I I always felt like one of those people who I felt like I should be good at chess, but I'm not. I'm really terrible and I really don't like it. So I've mentioned the game very recently, but have you ever played Avalone? No. Oh, yes. Yes. I think I have. Is that where there's like round stones and you push them around? Yes, yeah. I used to play that when I was in high school, middle school. Wait, I think, it's been around that long? Pretty sure. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just well, discovered you, you, it a month ago. You push down, and then they go into a little rack on the side. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and and you yeah. move. You can move up to three at a time, in the same direction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's been around since '90s at least. Wow. Okay, I Maybe didn't before. know that. Super fun. I probably didn't know that when it was a top pick on the last episode which as of this recording hasn't been published yet so you haven't heard it but it like that game has been it's cuz it's a max 30 minute game to play yeah and but it's intense strategy and it, it like uh it's it, i imagine uh medieval battlefields because you're you're moving ranks and sending these like spears through other people's ranks and yeah Anyway, that's pretty cool. Actually, I just had another. If you like short games, uh, there's a card game I play with my kids. It's simple enough; kids can pick it up. It's called uh, Millborn, which I think means like a thousand miles in French. That's the second time French has come up. Um, it's just a quick card game. You can find it anywhere. It's super fun uh, and really well designed in Is terms that of two like, words or the one? cards. Two words: M I L L E. 
and then I don't know, born there's an extra U in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, right. That one's really fun. It's very simple. It's just like a card racing game. You pile up miles and you throw hazards on your opponents. But it, it's simple enough. You can pick it up, you know, first time you play. Uh, and it's a pretty quick game. That one's really fun. And uh, if you like design at all, you appreciate the design of the cards. Yeah. All right. So we're we're at 50 minutes. And where you are, that makes it uh, early evening. You, you good to do the top three picks, though? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. All right. Well, then, three picks each. You go first. All right. My first one is a relatively new addition. It is the uh, it's one of these ridiculous names. Zojirushi SM-SA36-BA stainless steel mug. Uh, it's a coffee mug. So I'm a coffee drinker. Uh, I was not always. In fact, I think when I met my wife, she asked if we wanted to go out for coffee. And I said, no, thanks. I don't drink coffee because <laughs> um, I was not smart. Uh, but anyway, we got past that <laughs> and I've been drinking coffee for quite some time and I hate lukewarm coffee. And so I just got fed up and I was like, there's gotta be, someone's gotta have a good travel mug. So I Google, you know, best travel mug or whatever and went to the wire cutter and that's the one I ended up getting is I think it's the wire cutters like best travel mug. And then I found some popular science article about it. Um, and there's nothing complicated. You just, you put coffee in it and it stays hot. That's pretty much it. Um, and that's the secret. So, is it but elect- it is it's amazing. Is it electric in any way? No, it is epic thermal design. I mean, it's it's one of these vacuum mugs, um, but I think they put multi-layer insulation in between the two layers, which is a, a space thing. And uh, it's got a little sealable cap, so you can, with a lock, you can throw it in your bag. It's not going to leak. And I put coffee in that. It, like, eight, you get in the office, and it is hot. Like, I might burn my mouth hot at lunchtime. It is amazing. Is uh, space thing a technical term? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah, I I love the wire cutter. I gotta say, they're so good. I gotta plug that in here. I, I'll, Sweet Home wire cutter, and honestly, uh, Sean Blanc's tools and toys, which is basically like a miniature version of uh, Sweet Home slash wire okay. cutter for. A lot of uh, it's software and it's um, tech hardware. I shouldn't say tech hardware. It's like accessories, stuff, hipster stuff, I guess, kind of. Great everyday carry things and books and, yeah. Avocado toast. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, this kind of stuff, I I appreciate. Uh, yeah, I think it started for me with uh, with Marco Arment, who, oh, yeah. who would do these very thorough tests. Comparing. I've got a lot of. I've got a lot of par 20 light bulbs in my house. Thanks to Marco. So. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, like the results of these tests that were, that were clearly, uh, honestly researched. There was no, no one was paying for their product to win. Mm-hmm. These are, these are, uh, sites that I trust to tell me what's going to be the best. Yeah. And that being said, I use, Every single day, uh, a water heater by Zojirushi. Uh, when I make my AeroPress coffee, I have boiling water at the same time every morning ready to go. Uh, I push a button, dispenses into my AeroPress. That thing has lasted me for at least five years now, running every single day. 
Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of Zodruji. Plus, it plays classical music when the water boils. So what? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I'd never heard of them before, but this thing is this is amazing. All right. it, it got so bad there was a tally board in the office. Every time I mentioned my coffee mug, I got a mark. So like, it's too much. <laughs> Did you have to done. put money in a jar? You're done. No, it was just a shame <laughs> system, but it, it worked. It's cooled down a little bit. <laughs> All right. So okay, my first pick. Uh, uh, it's it's winter in Minnesota. And I assume this is true across the country, but I have always known it as kind of a Midwest thing. Uh, SAD, are you familiar with seasonal affective disorder? I am. I do not. Uh, I do not have it myself, but I'm aware of it. I I never thought I did, but as I get healthier, I'm beginning to realize, you know, what things affect me more than others, and the lack of sunlight really does like immediately after the the end of daylight savings time i felt uh incapable of like facing my day which was uh, i will say it was awful um so in the past i had been prescribed full spectrum lights i had one uh years ago that it was like a cfl uh, big thing on like an arm and the the face of it was like two foot by maybe eight inches and you had wow. to like tilt it up and you had to sit in front of it and mm. it was it was awful like you're supposed to do it for 60 minutes there was oh come there was on no way um it was like being in a tanning booth and you wouldn't even get tan <laughs> So I I didn't do that a lot. In recent years, things have changed. LED has changed everything. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like LED grow lamps and I'm not a pot guy. I grow actual like cooking herbs, Mm -hmm. but these LED uh, grow lamps that look like uh, (laughs) Christmas lights almost, but they're full spectrum and they simulate sunshine. This is actually, there's, there are, pure white full spectrum lights led based on the market now that come in as small as like uh, i think it's about four inches by one foot height so they stand up almost like little towers of light and you don't have to look directly into them you can put them off to the side while you're working and what i ended up getting was one that's six inches by six inches it has a little touch button on the bottom and it has three different settings for brightness and it's still you're supposed to use it for 60 minutes for me in the morning because it affects your circadian rhythms Uh, but I have found since I got it just this week when I use it in the morning and I have it on while I'm working at my computer just off to the side kind of facing me for an hour my day is 100% different like there is no question that this changes my day n equals one science is the best if it works man it works (laughs) my 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 philosophy exactly Uh, if it works for me i i i run my own experiments i i gather my own data and i i religiously collect data like i uh, i everything in my life uh, kind of uh, collates into I use exist but I look at all the food I eat I look at all of the things I do I look at 
everything and see how it actually affected me over the next you know week or two and i collect the data and this this light has made already within the first week visible differences that's kind of awesome so yeah, I, I, have to admit, I can't say said, it would work for everyone, and not everyone has SAD, but, yeah. I have to admit, you said full spectrum. I'm like, well, how full spectrum is it? You know, like, I'm, you know, I want a plot now of, like, frequency response, but... That is a uh, fair question. Uh, yeah. And I don't right. know. If it's it works, who cares? 10,000 lux. So it's super All right. bright and in your face, but, yeah, I don't know about... I don't have a way to actually measure the yeah. spectrum. As a quick aside, daylight saving time is the worst. It's a terrible agree. idea. Actually, I like I like daylight time. I don't like going back to winter. Right. Time. Like, I who, think we should just more light in the morning, and less light in the evening. <laughs> yes. Oh uh, man, we, brother. We should just uh, implement that permanently. Yes. Yes. I mean, well, since we're, we're, since we're Coast, apparently right? so... allowed to just pick our our like. Uh, GMT offset anyway. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Washington, Oregon, California. We all just decide to stay on summertime, and uh, boom, Pacific time just disappears. Yeah, simple yeah. as that. I, yeah, I don't, I don't understand why. Right as the days get shorter, we jump things forward so it gets dark earlier. Yeah, it's craziness. It's craziness. Insanity. All right. So, what's your second pick? Uh, my second pick is going to be a TV show that my kids found on Netflix. It's called Little Lunch, and it is hilarious. It, How would I describe it? The style, I guess, is like mockumentary style, right? So it's like they're pretending they're talking to a camera, and these kids are being interviewed. But it takes place like an elementary school, I think. And so they're, it goes through their day, and, and Little Lunch, I guess, is like some morning snack or recess or something like that. And it's just it's the way it's written. The kids are so earnest, you know, they're so into it. It's, it's what you would imagine or what you remember, like your life being at that point, like what's important to you and what's not. And, and you know, how I doubt people get, and you know, all the characters are, they're little caricatures of different personality traits. Uh, one of the girls is so hilarious is, uh, Deborah Joe. I think that's her name. She's so precocious, precocious and, uh, sassy and, I love watching a show as it kind of reminds me or it's what I imagine like my wife might have been like in parts, you know, as a little girl, <laughs> um, like a younger version of uh, it's a girl from Moonrise Kingdom, Susie, Susie from uh, Moonrise Kingdom. And, you know, I don't know. I just you, it's one of those kids shows you watch and you're sitting there and, you know, I wasn't really watching it at first. You know, I was on for the kids and then you, I just started cracking up. It was so hilarious. So I think there's just one season maybe out right now. But uh, so if you have so kids or. It is a kid's show. Oh, definitely. Yeah, totally age appropriate. Would someone without kids enjoy it? I, I did. I mean, it, you know, it's one of those things like, yes, you're going to be loading up a kid's show to watch, but it's also a short episode. So, you know, try it. If it's your, if your style, <laughs> then you'll know right away. And if it's not, you'll know that right away, too. I will uh, But check if you it need out. an intelligent thing and you need a, a kid's show and, you, you know, you just can't take any more Pokemon than a... <laughs> I, I have always been grateful to not have children almost entirely for the reason of not having to watch kids TV. Mm -hmm. But I do realize like I was a big fan of when I first, the first Shrek movie that came out, I think that was the first time I realized that all of these cartoons that were coming out billed as kids shows, kids movies 
had as many jokes for parents as they did for the kids. Yeah. And so I can see that being, yeah, no, I'll check it out. But absolutely for, for parents out there looking for uh, less annoying things for kids to watch. Good pick. All right. Have you ever seen Big Mouth? I don't think so. Another Netflix. Oh, is no, I'm pretty sure I haven't. Oh wait, Little Lunch is that a Netflix original? Did that come from? Ooh, somewhere I don't. Else? I don't think so. It's it's set in Australia, which is part of what makes it amazing because I love non-American English, you know, English accents. Sure, sure. Uh, so I think it was produced some somewhere down Australia and they got rights to it or something. But okay, well, Big Mouth is a Netflix original. Okay, the cast is. Uh, they're they're all comics uh nick kroll john mulaney jesse klein um it it's do not watch it with kids uh, uh, uh even up to 18 like it is <laughs> it's offensive i'm okay. sure but it deals with um uh, sexuality like teenage sexuality in ways that everyone will find very familiar like confusion and angst and it's a cartoon i honestly i binge watched it it was it was brilliant so for people who maybe don't have kids or have time even though they have kids to watch something not for kids that that's maybe the best cartoon on netflix right now all right sounds good i don't know why i felt a need to counter your pick that wasn't intentional no that's fine I wasn't trying to compensate for it. Um, Okay, so my second pick is a scale. I've been using up until very recently a it was a Fitbit like Wi-Fi scale. Um, I've been on a weight loss kick, and that's been it's been going well. I stopped using my Fitbit because of the Apple Watch, and as a result, that. Fitbit scale became less useful to me. Um, I just got the Eufy, I assume is how it's said, Body Sense Smart Scale. It's E-U-F-Y. So this is, it's a frustratingly good scale. Frustrating because it doesn't actually sync with HealthKit. Hmm. It has its own app and it does a great job of measuring like body fat, BMI, uh, water what? percentage, all of this. And it shows you like on your iPhone, everything that's happening, but somehow does not sync with HealthKit. I am, I am maddening, maddeningly driven to make this work because I need this data collected and I don't want to enter it manually every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if only you d- knew someone who scripted things, <laughs> right? <laughs> the uh, the app itself, the Eufy app, uh, Eufy Live, I think it's called. It does. It keeps a history, so I can, you know, I can hold up my phone to all of the other data charts I'm making. But no, that's that. that so that's the big downfall. That's what makes it three stars. Mm-hmm. But the scale itself really good the bluetooth connection and the connection to the app is super easy the data it's pulling is consistent and seems accurate i don't have a direct comparison to uh, to verify how was it measuring all that non-weight stuff 
so it's there are a lot of scales that basically you step on them barefoot and it uses various calculations that I am not uh, knowledgeable enough to speak about. But it's it's guess. You know, it's not like it's holding a pincer up to your abdomen to, like, measure your BMI. Right. But it, it, it like, you enter certain information, height and uh, gender, age, and it makes certain assumptions, and they get more accurate over time. So, basically, you stand on it barefoot, and it does its best. All right. Uh, give, give me two more weeks with it. And I will be able to tell you whether or not the uh, water percentage and BMI indicators are adjusting appropriately. You're just going to correlate this to Christmas time? Is that uh... is that coming up? I oh, think geez. so. I got to buy some yeah. presents. Yeah. <sighs> no, I'm just I, right now. I'm just impressed with the the tech and the scale. I don't. I cannot vouch for accuracy, and I can complain about lack of health kit in- integration. Yeah, that feels like a weird a weird miss, but I, you know, right. who knows. I, yeah. You, you got to wonder like, well, what was the what was the conference room like when they were having the meeting? I'm like, nah, forget about it. So we're just going to call this a hesitant pick. All right. Okay. All right, third pick. Oh man, I had I had a lot here. I was contemplating uh doing it Marco style having like nine picks in a top 4 <laughs> show, but uh I think I think I'm going to go with a, um, a book, uh, which I read years ago, and I do not remember where I heard about it. So it'll be it'll be funny if it was a, a pick on your show like three years ago or something. But uh, it's a book called On Intelligence uh, by Jeff Hawkins. And I remember just being fascinated when I read it. The, the conceit of the book, I guess, is a theory about how the mind thinks. And... You know, it's a little bit dense in the beginning, and I have no idea how if it's controversial because I have not read about, you know, kept up to date on what's happening in like brain research um, a little outside my wheelhouse. But it was just a super fascinating theory. Uh, it talks about, you know, how the mind is um, built in layers and how it does processing. And um, it took a few classes on neural networks and things like that. So it was, you know, interesting to, to see this theory and have it play out of how the mind thinks is so much different than how computers think. Um, and that's why they're capable of solving different kinds of problems. Um, and just the structure and the architecture of it was just fascinating, just from like a first principles, um, you know, one of those things where even if it's not right, and even if that's not how things work, I don't even care, uh, because it was still fascinating. <laughs> and I remember just being uh, kind of amazed that I found that book as interesting as I did and just plowed through it. And I think I've reread it once since then. Um, but just super fascinating, a thing I don't think a lot about, um, but just really loved. So there is um, an episode of Systematic that, as again, as of this recording, has not been... I'm way ahead on recording, um, but you haven't heard it yet, but uh, there... Wait, what day is it? You have first? No, you haven't heard it yet. It just came out today. Did you okay. hear the episode that came out today? No, I haven't. I'm one behind. <laughs> so one of the picks was, uh, and because this thus far has been a G-rated episode, I'm going to self-censor this, but it was on bull Um Did that work? Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty washed out. I think you read between the lines. Yeah. Um, it, it was by a guy who also wrote On Truth. So I feel like On Intelligence is a, a perfect sequel to those picks. All right. 
Like Unfortunately, this episode theme. isn't going up right after that, so this is going to be a historical reference at this point. All right. Well, you can maybe you drop the you'll have to drop the number in the episode notes later. <laughs> Will do. Um, but yeah, no, this sounds this, this this is a very different book. the The book that was recommended I bought as an audio book, and the the, the on Bullschmidt book. Uh, I bought it as an audiobook and immediately realized listening to it that it would be way funnier in writing. Mm-hmm. I did not like the narration of it. So not I do it. actually intend to buy that. It, it's That's a short one. but Yeah, this one has figures. I would definitely not do it audio. <laughs> figures just, they don't translate. No, it's very hard. <laughs> do they? Do any audiobooks try to like describe figures i don't know that'd be hilarious it would take about a thousand words for each one so i imagine it would lengthen the book by quite a bit okay so my last pick i was obsessed with getting this um uh magnetic iphone mount for my car working i had one from anchor that Mm -hmm. it, it was it was nice it was high quality but it mounted with this small circle and uh, my Audi TT, the entire dash and console is all a curve. And I could not get it to stick anywhere. Even at a perfect 60 degree temp, completely cleaned, dried, and left for 24 hours to for the adhesive to cure, I could not get it to stay up long enough to hold my phone for more than an hour. Uh, you sure you tried hard enough? <laughs> uh, the, maybe the fourth time I kind of like half-assed it, but... Um, oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. So I gave up. And this is after ordering two more packs of adhesive pads. I did eventually find this one by a company called Wizgear that just it sticks into your air vent and i've never had a lot of luck with these air vent phone mounts before Uh, i have broken multiple air vents because of them this one's one of the cool ones with just like the four prong it's like a like a cone with a cross carved into it so Mm, it's mm -hmm. just four squeezed together prongs you wedge it over any part of your air vent or like any of the slats on the air vent and then it has right. a strong magnet on it and you put a, a plate either in between your phone and its case or just adhere to the back of your phone and it snaps you can snap the phone i use it with my 7 plus it's plenty strong enough to hold that uh holds it in place and then you can just the slightest bit of pressure outward the phone comes off without pulling it out pulling the mount out from the air vent I've been using it for a couple weeks. I'm really, I didn't think it was going to be as uh, fluid as it actually is. It's amazing how much joy little things like that can bring to your life, right? It is. I knew it would bring me joy. I have wanted it for so long just to be able to sit down in my car and snap my phone to the dashboard. I, yeah. So yes, I am joyous now. And all because of a small magnet. Right. Yeah. Nice. 
So I, I'll recommend that one. I also bought from the same company a, uh, a an adhesive one because I want to try like a different version. And their adhesive one has like a three inch tall by one inch mount that is on a flexible, like the base of it is, it's a plastic that you can actually bend to a curved dashboard. So I'm going to give that a shot, but I haven't yet. So I can't say. Nice. All right. Yeah. All right. That's three and three. So, Adam, thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I know you can be found at world, W-U-E-R-L. That is way easier to say than to spell on Twitter. Um, Where else do you want people to be able to find you? Uh, I've I've got a, a blog, um, and it's at uh, vertical.net. That's V-E-R-I-D-C-A-L.net. You, you, you and I write to, there uh, pretty rarely. You have to quickly explain vertical. Oh, it's a um, it's a, a term or a word I came up off uh, just kind of reading about you know consciousness and things like that. It's one of uh, topics I'm interested in, and it's a uh, it means I've got the definition on the on the about page because nobody knows, but it's you know coinciding coinciding with reality is the definition I like the most. Example: Such memories are not necessar- not necessarily veridical. I'm yeah, reading this indeed. off your website. Yeah, I figured. I, I enjoyed that. All right, anywhere else? Uh, no, I think that's pretty much it. All right, at Whirl and Veridical.net. And I am Brett Terpstra. I am at brettterpstra.com. And uh, you can find me on esn.fm slash systematic and slash overtired with Christina Warren. New episode coming this. This episode so far has had that me saying that there's a new episode of overtired coming is uh, presumptuous. So um, check that out. Also, you can find Systematic on Twitter at Systemcast, S-Y-S-T-M, cast. And you can find me on Twitter and everywhere else as TTScoff. And you can go to signup.systemcast.net to join the Slack room and toss in your own top three picks, talk to guests, etc. So, hope to see you there. And I, I think that's a wrap. So one more time, thank you, Adam. This has been fascinating. Likewise. I hope that when when you get to Mars, you will let me know, and I hope to get an invitation. Sounds good. This should be a few months warning. Takes a while to get there. <laughs> All right. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening. We'll see you in a week. Bye.